So starting in verse 5, going through verse 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief, chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So now, if you're reading closely through this chapter, John chapter 7, you may be a little discombobulated by the apparent confusion of the crowd. Right? So in last week's passage, we saw that part of Jesus' crowd was oblivious to the religious leaders' plans to crucify Jesus. So if you look down in verse 20, uh, they respond to Jesus. They, they scream, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So we see part of the crowd, they're oblivious to the Jews' plans to kill Jesus. But now we see a group of people in the crowd who are aware of the religious leaders' plan to kill Jesus by, in this verse, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So on a surface level, it, it seems like the crowd's confused, right? Or suffering from some type of short-term memory loss. Or they, maybe they resemble a blue fish who's in search of an orange fish. Dory? Finding Nemo? No? Um, so at the moment, the crowd is unaware of the religious leaders' plans to kill Jesus. And then the next moment, they've been aware of it the whole time. So there, there seems to be this, this issue here. What's going on? Well, I think when you begin to dig into who it is that's speaking, we'll notice that there's two different types of people or two different groups of people here. The crowd speaking in last week's passage, exclaiming, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Those are likely to be those, uh, the, the crowd who's traveled in to Jerusalem who reside in a um, different location. So since they don't live in Jerusalem, they would be unaware of the religious leaders' plans to kill Jesus. And we, I think, can safely come to this conclusion because those speaking in this week's passage are from Jerusalem. John tells us, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So the people in our passage are Jerusalemites, right? Men, women, folks who are from Jerusalem. So therefore, this is therefore a group of people who live in close proximity to the religious leaders. They remember, back in John chapter 5, this story, they remember seeing Jesus heal this invalid. They remember that whole thing, this man who's been next to the pool for 38 years, and now he's up and walking, skipping. How did this happen? Okay, Jesus healed this man. They remember 
that story. They saw that story played out. They remember watching the religious leaders grow frustrated with Jesus. They remember hearing about the plans to kill Jesus. And they're aware of the fact that the religious leaders are now actively seeking to kill him, as we see in John chapter 7, verse 1. They're aware of all of this. And this leads the crowd to say, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. How can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So again, they remember Jesus healed this invalid on the Sabbath. They remember the religious leaders getting frustrated. They remember the plans to kill Jesus. They're aware of it. But now, strangely enough, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem, where for six months he had gone missing in Galilee. Now he's returned, and now he's preaching openly again. He's throwing these jabs at the religious leaders once again. He's proclaiming to be one with the Father, to be the one who's sent by the Father, and nobody's doing anything. The religious leaders are doing nothing. So the crowd's kind of scratching their head at this moment, saying, what's going on here? On one hand, I think death threats have a way of weeding out falsehood, right? So if, if Chris says, Ryan, I'm going to kill you because you say Florida State's better than Alabama, I'm going to quickly abandon that falsehood, right? I clearly know Florida State's not better than Alabama, so I'm going to throw that aside. But Jesus continues to preach openly, continually in the face of opposition, proclaim truth. The threats of death do not deter the faithfulness of Jesus. But on the other hand, more specifically, I think what we see in our passage is the crowd can't comprehend the religious leaders doing nothing. So if Jesus is lying, which is what the religious leaders are proclaiming, then why are they doing nothing? If Jesus is falsely claiming to be God, then he must be punished. If, they, if there's an arrest a warrant out to get Jesus, why are they not arresting him? We need old Kanye West to come and snatch the microphone away from Jesus, right? That's what we need here. But no one's doing any, anything. So what's the reason for their idleness? Maybe the religious leaders know something that the crowd doesn't know. Maybe Jesus is actually telling the truth. Maybe Jesus is the Christ. So can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The question that they're asking here is one of the most important questions that anyone could ever ask. Is Jesus the Christ? Now, I think it would be very helpful for us to stop here and address the question. I don't want to assume that all of us know what the Christ means. Because the reality is, some of us are probably saying, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. Christ is his last name. His name is Jesus Christ, right? That, that's what I thought for a long time. So let's address that really quick. What does the term the Christ mean? What are they really asking here? The term Christ is not Jesus's last name. So if Jesus gave you his driver's license, it wouldn't say Jesus Christ, six foot two, blonde hair, blue eyes. It wouldn't say that. So Christ is a proper title. Here, Matthew uses the title Christ 17 times. Mark uses it seven times. Luke uses it 12 times. John uses it 19 times. So John uses this title Christ more than any other gospel um, account. So the title Christ is foundational 
to the Gospel of John. If you remember, the purpose of this Gospel that we see in John chapter 20 is to convince us, to persuade us that um, John tells us that he's writing this so that we might believe that Jesus is what? The Christ the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. So John is seeking to show us the, the answer to the crowd's question is yes. Jesus is the Christ. But what does the title Christ mean? Right? The Hebrew word for Messiah is translated Christ in the Greek. Uh, and it means anointed one. An anointed one means to be set apart and empowered by God for a specific task. So Hebrew word Messiah, used in the Old Testament, translated in the Greek, Christ, it means anointed one. Anointed one means to be set apart and empowered by God for a specific task. So in the Old Testament, you'll see um, God anoint for himself, set apart for himself, prophets, priests, and kings. So where there's Old Testament prophecies... Um, speaking to this coming Messiah, this coming anointed one, um, that, that this anointed one will be a greater prophet, priest, and kings than those in the past. So this will be an eternal king, one who will rule for all eternity. This will be an eternal prophet, the, the true word of God. This will be the eternal priest who is set apart by God to purify and redeem his people for all eternity. So Israel is anxiously waiting for the Christ to come to establish this eternal kingdom. So their question here is monumental. They're asking, could the authorities really know that Jesus is this Christ? He really is this Messiah, this anointed one who's set apart by God to establish this eternal kingdom. Could Jesus be the anointed one who is set apart by God to redeem and purify his people is he Jesus the one that we have been waiting for and this is one of those moments as readers that you want to scream yes it is dude you've got it give me that give me half off you're on to something here Jesus is the Christ Jesus is the greater set apart anointed prophet who came to proclaim good news to the poor as we see in Luke chapter 4 he came to those who have been bankrupt by sin, and he extends to them a hope of being reconciled with God. And how can he do this? How can one be reconciled with God? One can be reconciled with God because Jesus is also the greater, set-apart, anointed priest. He is the only sufficient mediator between sinful man and a righteous God. And he was anointed to offer once for all a sacrifice to remove this guilt of sin, as we see in the book of Hebrews. But how can he do this? How can his death, how was his death sufficient to remove the guilt of our sin? His death is sufficient because Jesus is the set-apart king, the anointed king, the supreme Lord over all, the one that all things were created by, through, and for, as we see in John chapter 1, as we see in Colossians 1. In him all things hold together. He is the one who has been anointed with all authority and all power to defeat our greatest foes, sin and death. 
And so as readers, as believing Christians who've experienced this hope and seen Jesus for who he truly is, we're certain of this because fast forward through the end, to the end of the gospel, Jesus died, but the story doesn't end at his death. He resurrected. He rose from the dead, from the grave. So we're certain of this because of the empty tomb. And so we, as readers, should be saying to these, this crowd, dude, you're right on track. You've got it. But unfortunately, this hopeful moment for the crowd is short-lived. The idea of Jesus being the Christ is short-lived because they begin to think, well, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So we see in verse 27, they quickly dismiss the idea of Jesus being the Christ because they knew where he came from. Now, I, I was honestly really confused when I first read this. Like, why does knowing where Jesus came from dismiss the idea of Jesus being the Christ? Because I thought, aren't there Old Testament prophecies stating that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is where Jesus is born, right? So the answer to that question is yes, there are Old Testament prophecies stating that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, uh, Ephrath, uh, um, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, shall, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So that led me to ask, okay, if we have these Old Testament prophecies stating that this anointed one, was going to be born of Bethlehem, Jesus is born of Bethlehem, wouldn't knowing where Jesus came from give you more evidence to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Why do they write Jesus off here? Why do they dismiss the idea of Jesus being the Christ because no one will know where the Christ comes from? Well, during this time, there's an idea that the Messiah would be born of flesh and blood from Bethlehem, yes, but there was also this idea running around that would that the Messiah would remain unknown until it was his time to act and rule as king. So they would come to this conclusion because of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So they're, they're interpreting this verse, believing that the Christ was going to remain unknown and then supernaturally arrive at the temple, ready to reign as king. So this was going to happen instantly in their mind. So the crowd's looking to Jesus, and they're asking, he's far too human to be Christ. I know his mom and dad. I watched him grow up. Sure, he's done some pretty miraculous things up until this point. But how can the carpenter's son be the Christ? I, Jesus and his dad made me a table. He made me a chair. How, how they're fighting to reconcile this, and so they write him off. Jesus didn't fit the mold of what they thought the Christ would look like, and so they therefore write him off. I think there's some application for us here to, to draw from this. Have you, like the crowd, written off Jesus because he doesn't fit into a certain mold of what you think he should be or look like? Or have you humbly come to God's word, allowing God to rightly teach us who Jesus is? Now, Jesus could easily correct their false interpretation of this passage, or the passages like Malachi 
he could easily walk them through the Old Testament, showing them how knowing where he comes from should affirm the idea of him being the Christ. But he doesn't correct their false understanding here. Rather, as we see in verse 28, he proclaims, he yells, he shouts, he exclaims, he gives this public announcement as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So sure, you possess an understanding of where I came from. They're aware of his hometown. They know his mom and dad, but that's all they know. That's where their knowledge ends. They're blinded to the truth about Jesus because they do not know God, the one who sent him. Jesus personally and intimately knows the Father because he came from the Father. He came not on his own accord. These are points that have been continually reiterated throughout the Gospel of John. The Father and the Son are one. The Father sent the Son as the bread of life. If the world knew the Father, if they knew God, then they would know the Son. They would know Jesus. But they're unable to recognize Jesus as the Christ because they do not know God. Now, again, Jesus could have easily corrected their misinterpretations of the scriptures, but he doesn't. He could have easily said, hey, Micah 5, 2, guys, the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. I'm born in Bethlehem. I'm born. I was born in Bethlehem. The Christ was a descendant from David or is to be a descendant from David. Here's my birth certificate. I'm a descendant from David, but he doesn't do any of these things. This tells us that the crowd's biggest need, their greatest need, is found not in a lack of information. Rather, their biggest issue is found in not knowing God. So Jesus is crying out, you think you know and understand what the Christ is going to be like, and you think you know and understand who I am, but you know eat neither because you do not know God. And so regardless of what this crowd thinks, Jesus really was the one who was sent down from heaven by the Father. And similar to the religious leaders in last week's passage, they don't recognize this truth because they don't know who God is. There would be no confusion over who Jesus was if they knew God, but they don't. They don't know the one who sent him. They don't know the Father. So similar to what he's previously said to the religious leaders, he's now saying to the crowd. We see this same message. You don't recognize me as the Christ because you don't recognize God. This is a strong rebuke against the crowd. Jesus is taking his flashlight and he's shining it into the dark depths of their sinful hearts, exposing their true need for the Messiah, their true need for the Christ. So where the crowd believed that the Messiah was going to come as this militant ruler with his sword drawn, ready to set them free from their um, Roman domination, Jesus came with his sword drawn, yes, ready to defeat sin and death, their greatest enemy, um, setting their sinful hearts free from sin. So as a result of this rebuke, you see two different responses from the crowd. You see part of the crowd stiffening their neck, responding in hatred and hostility. 
And then you see another part of the crowd respond in trust and belief. Let's look at verses 30 through 31. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So first group, in response to Jesus's words, part of the crowd sought to arrest him. So the exposure of sins never pleasurable, right? And so they stiffen their necks. Let's arrest this guy. Rather than reflect on Jesus's words, confessing their need for a savior, they stiffen their necks and reject his message. Who are you to say that I don't know God? Who are you to say that you are from the Father? Who are you to say these things? Let's arrest this guy and shut him up. Let's eliminate this message. They sought to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's an interesting caveat there, right? Their malicious attempts to arrest Jesus fell short of being effective. So the first question I ask here is how, right? If this crowd is seeking to arrest him, if the religious leaders want to kill him, how does Jesus escape the crowd? How, how does this flesh out? I would love to know how. But John doesn't tell us how, which means the how here isn't important. But John does tell us the why, doesn't he? When the hostile crowd made up their minds to arrest him, no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So what does this tell us? It tells us that no persecution falls outside of the sovereign hand of God. The crowd didn't lay a hand on him because it wasn't in God's timing for them to do so. They did not lay a hand on him, not because they simply didn't want to. They wanted to. They're seeking to arrest him, but it was not their time to do so. So Jesus was not to be arrested and crucified during the Feast of Booths. His time for that to happen would be six months later during the Passover. Jesus was to be arrested and crucified as the true Passover lamb for our sins. So it was not his time. And so I hope and pray that this somehow comforts us as a church and somehow spurs us on to be bold in our faith. Let me be transparent for a moment. As a young father with young kids, there's... There's a legitimate fear in me that pain or harm or something will happen to my children or my wife. That, that's a legitimate fear. So being bold in my faith is sometimes crippled by a fear of my family being put in danger. Like I'm just going to be 100 with you. I'm going to be transparent there. But another fear of mine is just rejection in general. Like I, I don't like to be rejected. I don't like people to not like me. And so the fear of man paralyzes my boldness in the faith sometimes. And it will cause me to shrink back from sharing my faith. But here's the deal. If we're faithful in sharing the truth of the gospel, persecution, rejection is going to happen at times. You're going to see in our passage today, there's two possible responses. One can respond in rejection or one can respond in repentance. And we'll see the latter in just a moment. But may this verse comfort and embolden us 
No one was able to lay a single finger on Jesus because it was not his time to die. And so in this instance, God protected Jesus from harm. And I think we can safely conclude that no persecution or harm that we may face falls outside of the sovereign hand of God. We should never seek out persecution or harm. Right? That would just be dumb and silly. I'm going to go share my faith. Hopefully someone will punch me in the faith. I long for that. Right? No one rightly thinks that. But if we do encounter persecution for our faith, may we delight in knowing that a good and gracious God allowed it to happen and he will use it for his glory. And so may this somehow paradoxically encourage us to be bold in our faith. The enemy's greatest attack against the church will never fall outside of God's sovereign hand, and God will always use it for his glory. The crowd was seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So on one hand, the crowd responds to Jesus' message with pitchforks and fire, and they're ready to crucify him, put him, arrest him, put him away. But on the other hand, Part of the crowd responds in belief. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they're looking at Jesus. They're remembering these works that he's done. They're remembering the prophecies in the Old Testament. And they respond in belief. They're saying, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then what more could the Messiah do? Right? Like, where else would we go? Like, this is it. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. This is what we long for. Right? This is what we pray for. We long to see men and women see Jesus for who he truly is and then respond in faith, respond in belief. And for this hope, we endure persecution, right? We long to see men and women respond in belief to Jesus. And before we move on, what does this crowd do following their belief? They proclaim. They speak. So they go to those who do not believe, and they say, when the Christ appears, when will he do more signs than this man has done? So they immediately become apologists. Right? They immediately become defenders of the faith. They didn't go through a class. They simply go to those who were wrestling through the same questions, and they say, hey, could the Messiah do anything more than what he's doing here? This has to be the Christ. Guys, what are you waiting on? Think logically about what this, who this is standing before you. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. And so proclamation is a natural response to belief. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you submit to him as Lord, if you give your life to him, then part of being a believer is going to be sharing your faith, talking to, engaging the world, engaging those around you with the hope of the gospel. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, you will then long for others to taste and see that the Lord is good as well. And so may we not shrink back from sharing the hope of the gospel with our neighbors. May we open up our mouths and share this hope with others. Let's continue reading. 
the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So John does an excellent job of building suspense here, right? The Pharisees hear the crowd, begin to speak positively about Jesus. They're seeing people respond in belief. They hear of their belief. And so they send officers to arrest him, right? The, the, there's an interesting reality here of the chief priests and Pharisees Men who do not like one another, Democrats and Republicans, joining forces, agreeing with one another, we need to shut this guy up. Let's go arrest him. And so they pursue this because of they, they hear of these things, these this mutterings about Christ. And rather than run, Jesus continues to preach. He says this, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me. And you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So once again, we see this reality that Jesus is aware of his pending death. But he knows that his death on the cross is not the end of the story. I will be with you for a little while longer, but then I'm going to be crucified. And then I'm going to resurrect. And then I'm going to ascend. I'm going to return back to the one who sent me. I'm going to return back to the Father. So through his death, Jesus will return to where he came from. He will return to the Father. He will be going to a place that they cannot go to or find because of their disbelief, because of their rejection of the hope of the gospel. In John 6, we see Jesus allude to his ascension by asking his disciples, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So he asks this question of, okay, you're struggling with me being the, the Son of God, um, the Son of Man who ascended down. Well, what are you going to do if you see me ascend back to heaven? Well, now for the first time, we see Jesus explicitly say to the crowd that he will return to where he comes from. So death is not the end of the story for Jesus. Their efforts to arrest him, their efforts to stop him, kill him, destroy his ministry, destroy this belief in him that's beginning to um, kind of build up, that they're pursuing all of this, that's going to fall short. It will not be able to minimize this hopeful gospel message. And tragically, there will come a point in time where some will seek him for salvation, but it will be too late because, as we will see in John chapter 8, verse 21, they've died in their sins. So the warning here by Jesus is crystal clear. Do not tarry. Do not wait to come to Christ. Come to him now. Taste and see that he is good now. Do not tarry. His audience will die in their sins without believing in Jesus. And at that point, it will be too late. They will seek him, but they will not be able to find him. They will not be able to come to where he is. Hell will be where they reside for all eternity. And there will be no second chance at this point um, to make things right. They will not get a second chance here. So where Jesus is, they will not be able to come. So there's an urgency that comes with the gospel. May we proclaim the gospel now, and may you respond to this gospel message now. Do not wait.
do not tarry. But the Jews sarcastically and bitterly say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So I think you see a lot of sarcasm here, right? So LOL, R-O-F-L, L-M-H-O, laughing my hiney off because they're religious leaders, right? So you see this, this sarcasm in their, their tone here. Where's this guy going to go that we can't go? Is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks? Is he going to teach the Greeks? In other words, is Jesus going to go to the cities outside of Israel and, and teach the Gentiles and teach those who live among the Gentiles? The only place that they could fathom not going to is the surrounding nations, is the world. And so heaven? No, I'm not worried about him going there. I, I, I got that in the back. I'm, I'm fine there. I'm not concerned about not being able to make it there. He has to be talking about the Gentile nations. I would never go there. That's a repulsive thought. Is he going to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Is he going to go and teach the Greeks? What's he talking about here? And as Gentile believers, which we are, in a land far from Jerusalem, I hope we see the irony in their question here. Right, Jesus is speaking to the, his returning to the Father in heaven after his death, resurrection, ascension. His audience is mockingly thinking of a physical location that is so repulsive that they would never go to. But ironically, following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, this message that he's proclaiming by the power of the Holy Spirit will spread to those very people to those surrounding nations, to the world, which was God's plan from the beginning. So through belief in Jesus, the whole world will be blessed by the faithful work of Christ on the cross. We're going to see that played out more in next week's passage. And so may our hearts therefore long to take this hopeful message into all places, into the world. May there not be a single place or people immobile in the world that we were repulsed to go to. May we have a genuine desire, a genuine longing to take the gospel to all people. May we long to see the thirsty come to Jesus and drink. In returning to the crowd's initial question, Jesus is the greater, set-apart, anointed prophet. He is the Christ. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He has come to those who have been bankrupt by their sin, and he extends to them hope. He extends to us hope of being reconciled with God. How can he reconcile sinful man to God? How can sinners be reconciled with God? Sinners can be reconciled with God because Jesus is the greater set-apart anointed priest. As the book of Hebrews tells us, he is the only sufficient mediator between us and God. He was the anointed one who offers once for all, one sacrifice, his death on the cross, to remove the guilt of sin. How is that possible? How is his death on the cross sufficient to remove the guilt of our sin? 
His death was sufficient because Jesus is the set-apart anointed king, the supreme Lord over all, the one that all things are created by, through, and for, the one that in him all things hold together. He is the one who has been anointed with all authority and all power to defeat our greatest foes, sin and death. And we're certain of this because of the empty tomb. So church, if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this hopeful reality should catapult you into imitating Christ in all that you do. So may we day in, day out, cast our eyes on Jesus, clinging to the hope of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, glorifying God in everything that we do. And may we, like Jesus, humbly serve others in both our words and actions, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. May we be a people who proclaim the gospel. If we have believed that Jesus is the Christ, then we share that good news. So as Caleb comes up, he's going to lead us in a song. What I want us to do today is I want us to spend some time reflecting on, one, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Are you following him, submitting to him as Lord? And then two, if the answer is yes to the first question, two, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you proclaiming this good news to? Think of answers. And may we spend some time praying for those men, those women, those children, whoever it may be. May we pray that the Lord saves them, that he draws them to himself. And may we pray for opportunities to share this hopeful message. May we pray that as we go on Friday night, that we'll have opportunities to share this hopeful message, that we'll have opportunities to engage the community with the gospel. May we be a people who proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ.